the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is the Bible actually about choice? And should Christians still be sending their kids to the public schools? You are listening to The Common Good. Ministry is not defined by who signs your paycheck and later seizing back to school moments as gospel opportunities. You're listening to The Common Hey everybody, Good. welcome back to The Common Good. You're on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We are glad that you're with us. It's a Wednesday. Aubrey, that makes it a... Well done! Oh, I had I, you. I you almost, lost it. I did. I was like, Wednesday, what does that mean? So on my calendar, I got a blah, blah, blah. Oh, I know where Brian's going. It's going on hump day. You, you looked at me like, what? I know. Uh, what did Wait, I do? Wait, don't, don't put me on the spot. It, it's hump day. It's yeah. hump day. So we're glad that you're with us here on this Wednesday afternoon. Unseasonably cool. It's nice outside. Yeah, it's like a fall. It's a nice, crisp fall All day. Week. All yeah, week. I'm enjoying so. it. I have a sweater on. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> In case you were wondering, listeners, I have a sweater on. So we are glad that you're with us. If you've missed any of the shows this week, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. Aubrey, uh, we've been talking almost every show. At some point, we've touched on over the last couple of months the abortion debate. The abortion rulings, the, what's going on with the Supreme Court, how the church should be reacting, all of it. Yes. And this feels front burner. It continues to feel front burner. Well, th- there was a very, hmm, how should I put this, interesting quote made the other day by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Now, if you know Al Sharpton, I feel like he's been in my life a long time because he, before he was national, he was New York. Oh, So right. I remember uh, Al Sharpton. But uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton is much more... Um, political commentator than he is reverend, I right. would say, at, at this point. at least these days, yeah. But he is a reverend. Yep. And so people listen to him, especially mm-hmm. on the Democrat side. So he, the other day, weighed in. Can I read you some of his Please. quotes? Uh, he said this in an appearance on MSNBC. Sharpton was asked how Democrats should engage older black voters who, quote, have deeply held religious beliefs on the issue, uh, showed growing acceptance of abortion among African-Americans. Sharpton suggested Democrats must, quote, message it in a way that it's about choice. It's not about saying I'm voting that I support abortion or not. So we hear people say mm-hmm. this, right? It, we need to keep it safe. We need to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, he goes on to talk about the Bible. Okay. Sharpton said the Bible, if you're using this as a religious argument, the Bible is about choice. You could go to heaven or hell. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to go to heaven. Sure. So where do we get this theology of forcing something when the reality is you can't even basically base that? It's a question of choice. If you're a minister, as I am, he says, you could preach to people to convert them. You do not make laws to compel them. Uh, the director of the Family Research Council Center for Biblical Worldview, not surprisingly, told the Christian Post that Sharpton, quote, could not be further from the truth. Yeah, right. So what do we do just with this idea of the Bible's about choice? And 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 I guess and then so I loved your response just to what Sharpton says. Mm-hmm. But then why are we seeing an increase in stories, I would say, on the left of going, on the progressive side going, yeah. we can fit this into a biblical framework. Yeah, I think that's what's so bothersome to me is it's like, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna be pro choice, I've said this all the time. If you're going to be pro-choice, then be pro-choice. That means you need to allow women who want to be pro-life to be pro-life as well, men and women. That's not the point of what we're talking about here. Using the Bible to ju- <laughs> using the Bible to justify abortion is just not acceptable. And I, you know me too, Brian. Like I am not. I don't tend to be very dogmatic about a lot mm-hmm. of things. There are a lot of things in the Bible that I do see as paradoxical, and we're, as we like to say. Uh, why not both? <laughs> this is not one of those issues. I mean, the Bible's very clear about the value of life and the start of life. And I think to use to say the Bible is about choice, you can go to heaven or hell. There's nowhere in the Bible to say you had to go to heaven, really misunderstands the heart of God, which is that no one should perish. Mm. And yes, God does give his people free will, but what we also see in scripture, the paradox is not so just decide. The paradox is God is 
calling people to himself all the time. Mm. Like it is God's will that people choose him and ultimately choose life in choosing him. Yeah. So it's a misreading of scripture. But I think the other thing that's, that's, and I don't, I'm not, there are lots of people who hate Al Sharpton. I am not one of those people, but I think what's hypocritical about this is other things that Al Sharpton stands for. He would say we should make laws to compel people. <laughs> the point of and laws. I think this is what's very frustrating to me is it's like, no, when you talk about social justice, when you talk about other issues, like you want there to be laws to compel people like that. Like you said, laws are here for a reason. And I actually think that's good. Mm-hmm. And so just to say, like, we don't make laws to compel people. I sure we don't make laws to compel people to uh be certain religion. I mean, that's in America, we like defend religious freedom, but what we're talking about is taking life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think this is where, why I appreciate what we talked about yesterday, David French's uh, comment on this, that pro-life doesn't have to be a religious stance. It can be a moral stance Mm -hmm. as well. And so you can have laws around it because it's moral. Anyway, I kind of talked all over the place, Brian, but I think this is a ridiculous statement. All of that to say, yes. <clears throat> the weird statement to me, first of all, there have been obviously decades of um, generations of theology books arguing whether or not the Bible's about choice, yeah. right? So let's yeah. table that, sure, okay? Sure. Let's pretend that it is, yeah. right? That doesn't mean that God is going, do whatever you want. You make the choice. <laughs> right. Oh, you want to you right. kill? Uh, do that. You want to do? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah. I'm all about your choice. Like, that's just a, a misunderstanding yeah. of just the word choice yeah. of what that even means. <laughs> right. And like you said, to say that law, we don't make laws to compel us. That is literally what laws are. Right. Like, right. we have laws you have you have speed limit signs yeah. on the road yeah. to compel you right. to go a right. certain speed. Right. We have uh, there's laws there's laws out there that compel me, you know, not to reach across the table and throw your computer and break right. it. Right? Like there's right. laws right. compel us, and it's just interesting <laughs> the way that people kind of take that a lot of times yeah. on both sides to be like, well, you know, laws mm-hmm. is it read the Old Testament like yeah. lots of law and and did Jesus come and fulfill the Yes, but laws still kind of, as a society, form the framework, form the guardrails for us to move forward. Um, let me ask you that something I touched on before. Why is everyone going for the Bible? Yeah, I, I, I that is very interesting to me because now we got Whoopi Goldberg going for the Bible right. to justify abortion. Now we got Al Sharpton going for the Bible to justify abortion. Um, I guess it's because those who oppose abortion, most of us are deeply rooted and using scripture to justify our belief, our mm. position, et cetera. And so the other side, I mean, I think we see this in other controversial views, too. The other side wants to use scripture because if you can use the Bible, I mean, this is what's interesting, even in a post-Christian world. If you can use the Bible to justify it. Well, no one can argue with God. Right. right. And so if God says it. It is, you know, but so I think that's it. It's it's funny to me that there's still something in us that the Bible, even for people who don't believe the Bible or worship Jesus, the Bible is still an authority in our culture. So I think I think that's why they're they're summoning authority, I but think misusing right. it. I think that's right. I think what they're doing is uh, they're going, oh. You know, we're not going to allow the right, the religious, whatever, however you want to define, to corner the market on the Bible. We're going to be smart about this, and we're going to show you, no, you can have the Bible. It feels like if both sides can have the Bible, then you can remove the Bible from the argument, from the discussion. And we're not going to allow that to happen, right? Like, that is... Well, especially since blatant misuse of the Bible. (laughs) This is silly. This is just bad. He's he's not reading the Bible. I'm going to say that. I think we can say that clearly. So, uh, the debate continues... To Ray John. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a new book called Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, a Biblical Theology of Ethnicity, Nationality, and Race. His name is Dr. Stephen Bryan. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you with us. And before we dive into this book, which looks fabulous, by the way, before we dive into it, could you just introduce yourself? Let our audience know a little bit about a little bit more about you. 
Well, I teach uh, New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Deerfield, Illinois, and uh, have been doing that since 2016. Before that, uh, we spent uh, more than 20 years uh, living in overseas, primarily in, in Ethiopia. I was involved in mission leadership and mm. theological education there and uh, and walked alongside of Ethiopians who were preparing for ministry uh, in Ethiopia and often dealing with questions of of ethnicity and what that mm. uh, what that meant for them, and then returned to the states in 2016 and found many of the same issues were were selling here. They were just framed up in different ways. Mm. Oh, that's not, that's so interesting, Stephen. Again, the title of the book we're talking about is "Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God." Um, help us differentiate between the terms and the definitions of ethnicity, nationality, and race, because I think we uh, throw those around a lot, but may not exactly even know what we're talking about. Well, it's a great uh, it's a great question. Uh, all of them uh, are referring to uh, different ways that that people think about collective identity. That is, what it means for them to be a part of uh, of a people. Hmm. Um, and for some, nationality is 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 primary. For some, ethnicity is primary. Race is obviously a very important category in some some countries, including ours. Um, so it's, it's a different way of thinking about the fact that that uh, that we as individuals, um, yes, we have a sense of personal identity or individual identity, but we also have a sense of collective identity, uh, and and we identify with with a people, and and in many cases we identify with multiple peoples. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's a very common uh, common experience. Yeah, and you say uh, in the book, you talk, you kind of anchor this in the earliest chapters of the Bible, right? So talk to us about that. How do you see the development of different cultures or people way back in the earliest chapters of Scripture? Well, we, we meet in the earliest chapters of Scripture this this divine mandate to, to fill the earth. And if we look to the earlier part of the creation story, uh, it is God filling the various Spheres of creation with with diverse life, mm. uh, and uh, and I think that's in creating man, male and female. He gives them this commission to fill the earth, and I think what he means by that is not simply populate the earth, that is populate the earth with individuals, but as we see in you know the abundance of genealogical material that that follows, to fill the earth with diverse peoples. Mm. Um, and and so that diverse that, that impulse to diversity or that purpose for a, a world filled with diverse peoples is is part of the earliest you know revelation of God's intention for uh, for humanity. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. As soon as, as soon as those differences start to uh, to emerge, um, you know, the divine mandate evidently is being filled. The earth is being fulfilled. The mm. earth is being filled with diverse peoples. But then it says that they filled the earth with violence. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as these differences begin mm. to emerge, the violence comes with it. And that's, mm. that's very much part of the human story down to our own mm. day. Mm. Let me ask you somewhat of a personal question, Stephen, from your experience in Ethiopia. How do these questions around ethnicity, nationality, race look different there than they do here in the States? Well, uh, I think... Um, Ethiopians, of course, um, think of themselves as uh, as having kind of two identities: a national identity uh, and then an ethnic identity. So there are about eighty some different ethnic groups in, uh, within Ethiopia. Uh, and when I first arrived, I had a sense that you know I was um, I was living alongside in the midst of Ethiopians, and I didn't really think about these ethnic differences. They they weren't visible, you know. We think about often in a, in the U.S. context, we're thinking about um, racial differences, and that's much more obvious in, to the to the to the eye. But it's not quite so evident uh, when it comes to, to ethnicity, and that's a very uh, it's a very different kind of uh, of collective identity. Um, but they had both, and and I think Ethiopian society worked well when they were giving salience to both or finding ways to give expression to both. What holds us together as a society uh, on the one hand, what is distinctive about us and how does that enrich the whole? 
Uh, and so uh, when uh, when one of one of the other of those got out of out of balance, then either the unity of the country would begin to suffer as people you know focus solely on ethnic identity, or the that uh, you know the the particular cultural contributions of each group suffered when there was this force to kind of assimilate to a kind of singular national national culture. Hmm. Hmm. And Stephen, thinking about the church, um, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people say things like, let's just talk about what makes us the same, right? What what unifies us and not talk about our differences. But but you're kind of holding out here that diversity kind of deepens the beauty of God's people, that it's important. Can you speak to the person out there who might be like, why do we even want to highlight our differences? Let's just talk about what what we have the same maybe in Christ. I think uh it's you know one way to respond to that is to is to is to ask the question, well, what's God's end game? Hmm. You know, where are, where is everything going? And I think we have this you know many people have this idea that uh that all the differences of culture and language that that just gets in the way of you know of uh, human interaction it causes problems, and someday that will be eliminated yeah uh, but that 's not what scripture is saying this is you know this if this is part of god 's design mm-hmm. in uh, from the very beginning, it is certainly what God is restoring to humanity in the creation of a of a new humanity and that 's very very clear in the book of uh, in the book of revelation yeah. um, you know as that as the Grand arc story, you know, narrative of scripture comes to its climax. Uh, that diversity is is celebrated. So that's not something mm. we're ever going to get over. Yeah. Uh, so I think within the church, we, you know, we live in hope. We live in hope and expectation of that. And so we need to, uh, you know, appreciate uh, the why of uh, of this as a value to God. Uh, and just you know to to lean into that. I think that's uh, I think you know that's the church at its best. Mm, such a good word for us, Stephen. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Where can they grab the book? Where can they follow all things Dr. Stephen Bryan? Yes, the book is uh, being published is published by Crossway, so it's certainly available through uh, Crossway's website. It's also available on on Amazon as you know, in Kindle and uh, as an audio book, um, of course, and, you know, in, in ordinary books, perhaps some of your listeners, you know, prefer audio books, you know, when they're not listening to your broadcast, some of the ways to access it as well. That's awesome. Again, Dr. Stephen Bryan, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of a new book called Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, a biblical theology of ethnicity, nationality, and race. Can't encourage you enough to go out and pick up that book. Steve, it was great to meet you. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, and uh, you guys have a great day. You too. All right, before we get into this uh, Dan Darling tweet, can I just share a story that I saw that really have nothing to comment on, except I just looked at it going, wow. Yeah. Man breaks Guinness World Record after eating 17 ghost peppers Uh, in one minute. uh, I mean, that's craziness. In San Diego, he shoved 17 ghost chili peppers down his throat. Uh, He broke the world record. I love that this guy owns a company called Inferno Farms that does nice. spicy stuff. Nice. So this is all he's wearing the the shirt that says Inferno Farms. But can you imagine? I, like I don't think I could take one bite of a ghost pepper. I can't imagine that he's not going to have issues over the next twelve to twenty four uh, hours. That's all I could think about. And like now he's spending the the rest of the week on the toilet. It'd like, be painful. That is that makes my stomach hurt hearing that story. I can't handle it. I. I understand it's probably good advertising for the company, but no, thank you. Hey, tip of the cap to him, though. Yeah, well done. Well done, sir. I haven't broken any Guinness World Records, so well done to you, sir. Yes. I think file this one away. We need to do top five weirdest Guinness World Records sometimes. Typing it into something (laughs) metaphorically. (laughs) You have the computer literally in front of you. There you go. All right. Dan Darling, who we've quoted many times before, uh, he's very... um, you know, he's an author, he's a writer, but he's also on Twitter a bunch. All right, here's what he said. Having secured generational wins on religious liberty in the last decade, I'd like to see conservatives return to talking about virtue. Hmm. Having liberty is important. What we do with liberty is also 
important. I think that when I first read this, when I know it's a good tweet, it makes you just kind of sit back and go, All right, what's he talking yeah, about Yeah, what's here? he saying? Do I agree with him? What's he saying? And I really like what he's having to say mm. here because I think he is right. Over yeah. the last generation, the 10 years he uses, te- decade, mm-hmm. there have been monumental steps in religious liberty. Yeah. There have been things yeah. that we can celebrate. Yes. But now he's going and he's speaking to a conservative audience. He's saying, but now's the time to look to virtue. I think what I, I want to make sure. I don't want to put words in mouth. I think he would have said we should have been talking about virtue the whole time. Right. But now he's saying, especially now, if you, those of you who right. were only worried about religious liberty right. and now you've got what you are looking for, uh, let's talk virtue. I, I appreciate this. Yeah. And to be clear, later on, he says, I do think we should keep fighting hard for more religious liberty protections. I just think we should recover virtue as well. Yeah. I feel like this is um, I really appreciate the sentiment because I was. I've had a conversation with you before, Brian, and I was talking with my mom a few weeks ago when I was in Oklahoma. Like, I feel like a um, I feel like a political orphan, partly because of this. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know where the virtue is, the morality is, the integrity is anymore. And I don't I can't agree. It's not even that I need a perfect, uh, you know, political candidate. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is such a thing. But I feel like I don't fit on either side because I don't see a lot of this call for virtue and um, goodness and Mm -hmm. integrity as like a civility. We talk about a lot on this show. I don't see that as being like a a value for any political leaders right now. And, um, you know, there may be some people who would disagree with me on that. But I, I think that makes it so difficult to figure out where you land. Like I, I, he says, I'd like to see conservatives return to talking about virtue. I'd like to see conservatives and uh, progressives talk about this. Like I just humanity in general, we have, we've really lost this. I feel like since COVID, I'm sure it's been before COVID, but it just seems like more and more stories of just hate, vitriol, pettiness, Mm uh, Meanness, meanness, just some crass things that we're hearing from political hopefuls on social media at their talks. It's that kind of stuff I'm just done with. I just it makes me sick to my stomach. So I I think two things come to mind for me here. There was it for some people. There was a holding your nose and going, well, we're not going to worry about right virtue. We need to get these wins. And I think that's what he's speaking to here. And again, I don't think he's saying that was okay. Right. But that's what now he's going. Hey, you said you were going to hold your nose for a time. I'm going to call you to this. Yeah. Let me be a little more cynical, though, and say that maybe we weren't ever as virtuous as we pretended to be. You're probably right. About that that, that maybe virtue never was really there. Yeah. And that once that balloon got popped with some leaders who were much more out there with their lack right. of virtue, right? that maybe it just gave license to a lot of lack of virtue. Why is virtue important, though, especially for the church? Let's. That's a good question. It's intertwined with politics. I understand that. But let's just go, hey, the Republican Party probably was never cornered the market on virtue right right Right. i think we know that or the democratic if you're a democrat but the church should corner the market on virtue yeah and we've seen that that's not the case why do we if daniel darling is right here why must we actually call the church back to to back to virtue i'm actually right now looking up the oxford definition of virtue because it's not a word we use a Mm -hmm. lot at Mm -hmm. least in the states here in 2022 and The first definition is a behavior showing a high moral standard. Mm -hmm. And so I think biblically we would talk about um, the fruits of the spirit as virtues. We would talk about a following in the way of Jesus as a virtuous life. And I I guess why why does it matter? One, because it honors God. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, because it is an outworking of the Holy Spirit in your life, making you more like Jesus. And three, I I just think it goes back to this idea that like because the world right now feels so empty of virtue, people who are actually allowing Jesus and the Spirit of God to create virtue in them stand as like a lamppost, a light, a foretaste of something to come. It's refreshing for the world around us to see someone who's virtuous. You know what I actually think? This may sound a little funny, but hear me out. I think this is part of why Ted Lasso, that show, like, oh, caught fire. Yes. 
Because I know it wasn't biblical, whatever, it's pop culture. And yet here's a guy in a show that by all all uh, you know definitions lived a virtuous life. He was kind to people who were mean to him. He continued to love people. Was he perfect? No. Did he have pain? Yes. But in the middle of all that, he was a joyful, virtuous person. And I, I feel a person of integrity, a person of kindness. And I feel like the world was drawn to that show because we're hungry. I for think that. you're right. I think you're right. And I think why the, let me answer my own question as yeah. to why this is important. Yeah. Minus virtue or what you said, moral living, moral yeah. upstanding minus virtue. Our words are a clinging. What's what's the word? A symbol, mm. right? A gong. Clinging gong. There yeah, you go. First Our, Corinthians 13. Without yeah. virtue. Uh, what we say rings hollow and, in fact, is Mm. hypocritical and pushes people away from Jesus. They go, well, I hear what you're saying, but you're mean. Right. Or you lie. You're deceitful. You're a womanizer. Yeah. Why would I ever listen to you? Our words, the gospel itself kind of has an underpinning of virtue. Like, And Mm -hmm. we live this out because we believe this is how you should live and the best way to live. And when the church doesn't model this, but instead models lack of virtue that we see in our political culture and the world around us. Like if I weren't a Christian and I saw Christians living like that, I'd be like, I don't want anything to do with it. Like virtue adds weight to it. It adds this. And when we lose it, like you said, we're no longer that light on a hill. We lose our saltiness, whatever you image you want to use. And so I do think Daniel Darling is right. Like Mm. if you've been holding your nose and holding out for religious liberty, okay, Mm. You got a lot of your wins. You got yeah. the Supreme Court you would look for. Right. How about virtue? Let's have mm-hmm. a conversation, Good. not even politically, but in the church about the importance of Good. virtue. Brian, uh, a friend that we have had on the show many times, a friend of the show, Karen Swallow Pryor, is um, writing at Religion News Service about the tight job market mm-hmm. and ministry. Okay, so let's, before we dive into what she has to say, um, Oh, people know this, but I still think it's worth talking about. Christians are in ministry, period, Mm -hmm. whether or not they work for the church or ministry or whatever. Right. That's right. That's right. We we have a theology of work that says uh, every, you know, we read it in scripture. Everything you do, do it for the glory of God. Yeah. Right. That means whatever your job, uh, whatever, you know, when you're at the little league field, when you're at wherever do do it all for the glory of God. So yeah. therefore, whether you're a pastor, you're a plumber, you're a teacher, you're a stay at home parent, whatever retired. Yes. You're on mission. You have a mission and you also you do that for the glory of God. Yeah, that's right. We would call that vocational theology. As there you well. go. Okay. So speaking of vocation, Brian, the other thing that we um, have seen, especially in the pandemic, is a major labor shortage. Yes. And I would say in our town, that's been most noticeable because restaurants like Chili's have closed down. Closed. Restaurants like On the Border have closed down. And I, the reason I'm bringing up these names is because they're chains. I like On the Border. They're, I love On the Border. <laughs> I can I compl- Can I have a little grind, <laughs> mini grinds my gears yes. section? So our On the Border was right by our movie theater. Okay. And Kevin and I would go, like, Tuesday night, it was cheap theaters, and Tuesday night there was always some kind of deal, like, you know, cheap fajitas or something at On the Border, so we would do dinner and a movie, and now On the Border is closed. There you go. And it's thrown off our whole date. You guys should not even go on dates anymore. I know. Our marriage should be over because of this. (laughs) But, okay, and that's the end of our mini grinds my gears uh, moment. Back to what we were talking about. Uh, I bring this up because um, if chain restaurants are closing down, part of it is because Kevin and I would show up to some of these restaurants as they were being closed down and there was like no employees. And they said, sorry, we we don't we can't seat you. We don't have yep. enough wait yep. staff. And you're seeing that in all kinds of places, especially restaurants, yep. yeah, especially restaurants. Karen Swallow Pryor is writing about this. She says the labor shortage was most noticeable at eating establishments from local diners to Domino's. And then she also says, as Americans returned to pre-pandemic levels of air travel, there were suddenly too few pilots, crew, and air traffic controllers. The delivery number of numerous goods and services slowed in part. I actually went to get some helium for um, a surprise party we had for my son last weekend. And there, because of the helium shortage, I couldn't find any helium. So there's that a was, helium shortage? There's a helium shortage. Some places have it, but some places don't. Isn't that crazy? Mm. So anyway, there are shortages all around. And here's what Karen Swallow Pryor says. 
She says, look, I'm not an economist. I'm not a labor expert. I have no insights as to why these shortages exist, how severe they are, how long they might last. But I do think the problem offers an opportunity for the Christian market. The shortages point to the need in our world for tent makers, Mm -hmm. not literal tent makers, perhaps, she says, but in the metaphorical sense of holding a nominal job while dedicating oneself to serving others. And then she talks about where this metaphor tent maker comes from. It comes from the life of Paul. Mm. Before his conversion to Christianity, he had trained as a rabbi, and it was customary at the time for rabbis to learn a trade. Whether or not Paul learned to make tents then or after his conversion isn't clear, but Scripture does report that even as he was converted to Christ, Paul supported his own ministry through tent making. Literally, he made tents. That's right. And she's saying perhaps there is a call for Christians to go back to this idea of becoming tent makers. What do you mm. think about that? I, I love it. I think it is important, even for the other end of this conversation, we put on a pedestal all of the, uh, I'm using air quotes, full-time ministry. Yeah, we do. And you and I are pastors. Yep. So we get that. And there are great benefits to being in full-time ministry. Yeah. Namely, I can focus myself on the ministry. Yep. But we have gone too far in our church culture of saying, like, the pastor is the one who does the ministry. The yeah. missionary is the yeah. one who does the ministry. As opposed to, it is my role as a pastor to empower people mm. to do ministry wherever mm. God has placed them, wherever they live, work, or play, right? Yeah. Like, we're all in ministry. And I think we've we've given the wrong impression that goes, if you're not in, if you're not getting a paycheck, this was her point earlier, yeah. if you're not getting a paycheck for ministry, whereas you and I have heard stories all the time that some people do much more ministry in their offices and in other places than totally. I ever do as a pastor. Totally. Uh, like, sometimes you wonder... Man, if I have a heart to see people come to Jesus, should I get out of the ministry right, right. and go to other places? And so I really do think she's on to it here. Of, of We need to get back to a church culture and a church voice that's about empowering people to go live on mission. And we're all called to go and make disciples. Right. And that doesn't need always. That doesn't mean everybody has to go to seminary. Everybody has to become a pastor. Everybody needs to leave on the mission yep. field or whatever. Certainly yep. we need some of that. Uh, but yes, I think this empowerment of workers mm-hmm. to be, like you said, tent makers yep. is uh, is essential right now. Yeah. One of the um, other things that Karen Swallow Pryor says in this article, she says Christian history has a robust theology of vocation, particularly from Martin Luther. Luther taught and she's quoting someone else from a book about Luther says this. This I love this quote. God does not need your good works, mm. but your neighbor does. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. She goes on to say, in other words, through our work, we serve our neighbor. And um, she's talking about what Brian just said. Now, of course, working in what we often call full-time ministry, it's good. It's honorable. It's a a way of serving our neighbors, but it's not the only way of doing so. And so I think she's right. Like, this is a call to remember that whether you serve at a restaurant or you're a teacher or a pilot or you work in finance or you work on the radio or whatever it is that you can use your work, utilize your work as a place of ministry, love the people you work with. Well, serve them, be a good friend, show them the love of Jesus. Like you can make tangible differences every single day when through your work right. you serve your neighbor. And I, this is interesting to me to think about, because it is easy, I think, to complain about the labor shortage and to complain about how bad things are. What if instead of trying to get jobs in Christian organizations, we kind of filled in the gap some of the labor shortage and used used that as an opportunity for ministry? Yes. I, I wonder what could happen. Yeah. I, I, the professionalization of Christianity, which you and I are quote-unquote professional we got Christians, two of them. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, I wonder if it's problematic down the road. I think it is. Yeah. And I think this is a call for everybody to remember that you have a mission, and it doesn't matter what your job is. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't matter in the sense of whether you're on mission or not. Like, right. you are called to go and make disciples. You are called to be Christ's ambassadors. You are called to be a light of the world, regardless of your profession. And in fact... I believe God has placed you in that spot to to make a difference. Yeah. And so look at your job that way. Look at your where at whatever's going on in your life that way. And then I think if we all were to do that, can you imagine the revival and the renewal that would happen yeah. across our world? That's what we're looking for, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's God's method. That's the method. It's not the professional Christians 
only. It's the uh, it's the church of everybody rising yeah. up yeah. And, and living in that way. Yep, yep. Such a such a good word. Such a good call for all of us from Karen Swallow Pryor. It is almost back to school season. And I don't know, Brian, if you're feeling this as much as your wife is feeling it. I'm guessing she's feeling it more than you, but maybe I'm wrong. But I am getting inundated with emails from the school about the school supplies that I need to get and the forms I need to fill out and remembering the doctor's appointments that I need to take my kids to and all kinds of back to school stuff that begins to feel really stressful. Let me let me go ahead. Let me warn you of what's coming in your future, because when your first kid goes to college, oh, no, it becomes all amplified like, well no it becomes like all you really like plan and think about right like we got to do a dorm room and it's all new right like yeah the, you got to get all the stuff for the dorm room but then there's every now and then you're like oh wait we have two more kids going back to school and one of them starting high school like you're like we should probably get them school supplies <laughs> because oh, yeah, our everything other kids. everything in your mind is like the college the, the college, college the college yeah the college. You're like, Oh yeah, he's going to a new high school, and she's oh, oh that, yeah, we got to get there. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, school's back to school thing is 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 like a it's, it's like no a full time job. It is. It's like a full time job, and it's expensive. That's not really what I came in here to talk about. But I mean, I'm looking at the school supply list, going, oh, we're gonna have to budget for that. Oh, that's preaching be to the choir painful. there. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, so with all of the stress of going back to school, Jackie King is over at Church Answers, encouraging parents. To use this uh, season as a gospel opportunity with your kids. And let me give you, Brian, um, some of the tips that she gives parents, and I'll let you respond to them, okay? She says, as we look to kicking off the fall semester, I want to give a few points for you as you seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus this school year. One, she says, seek out the new kid or the new parent, and she says, when my husband and I did student ministry, we always always challenge our students to find the new kid on the first day of school. They are usually easy to spot, walk a little slower, mm. trying to take in all the signs and directional cues, overwhelmed in the lunchroom, or the mom that's asking all of the questions at schedule pickup, posting on the neighborhood Facebook page. Walking into a new place, whether yeah. it's a church or a school, can be so intimidating. So you can encourage your students to be the student who seeks out the new kid, and you can do that as a parent as well. Why do you yeah. think that matters, Brian? We can just get, we can forget, especially if we're not the new person, mm. right? Uh, we can just forget that they're, the back to school time is really scary for yeah. a lot of people, yeah. who, especially new to a neighborhood. And, uh, you know, this is just what empathy is, right? Like it's going, mm. hey, I if I That's were in right. that shoe, if I were in that person's shoes, I would want somebody to talk yeah, to me. I would want yeah. someone to help me understand this new place. Yeah. I would want someone, to, whatever else. Like, that's what we would long for. And so be that person who steps in there. Yeah. And I love that idea of helping your kids realize I that. I love that, like, too. That's not natural. It is natural for some kids. Like, some kids huh. really, as an aside, did you see the the clip from the Little League World Series yesterday? <gasps> no. That was going viral? Was it cute? Sometimes those yeah. are so cute. Cute. They it like was it was cry. challenging as to what. Oh. All right, let me quickly tell yeah, you because it, it kind of goes to what yeah, you're talking about it. here. Uh, kid was batting, and pitcher hit him in the head, and everyone was like, <gasps> like it looked bad. Kid got up, he was okay. Yeah, went to first. Okay. The kid on the mound is crying because he's scared that he drilled the kid in the head. Oh. Like he's just overwhelmed with emotion. Oh. Unprompted, the kid from first base walks to the pitcher's I'm mound. I'm already crying. Hugs him. No. And you could hear him basically, basically saying to him, it's okay, you're good. It's okay. Everything's hugging. And then the coach comes out and kind of takes over. One of the little, the little sad thing was like the pitcher never really recovered and they had to pull him from the game. He was too emotional. But everyone was like, what did we just see here? What did we just witness? That this 12 year old boy, Mm. you just Google it. It's everywhere. Who, by the way, got injured. Got hit in the head. Is comforting the one who injured him. He was fine. Yeah. He did it. You see this moment where he's looking at the kid crying and he kind of takes helmet off and he just slowly walks to the mound and you're like, what's he going to do? They've probably, they probably met before the game. Just hugged him. Just (laughs) hugged him. And like whispered to him. And they said later he was whispering like, it's okay. You're good. All's good. Are you kidding me? No, you need to Google this later. My point being, sometimes we're like, oh, our kids don't think about the, sometimes our kids have greater empathy. They set the way. Faith like a child, right? They set the way, Mm. but. But we can spur our kids. Yeah. Like that is the fruit yeah. of how they are raised. Oh, love that. Um, and so, yes, let's let's make sure our kids have their eyes yeah, open. Yeah, so good. All right. The next point is 
Think about the power of an invitation. This is interesting, Brian. A survey by Action for Children reported that reported that 24% of parents said that they were always or often lonely. Mm. I think as parents, you can think of a life when you felt the sting of loneliness. And so, uh, you know, an invitation to something isn't always the solution to the loneliness epidemic we're seeing after the pandemic. But I think an invitation, inviting, encouraging your kid to invite a lonely kid to lunch or over for a play date or you being the one going to the lonely parent, inviting them to a coffee or to a book club or to whatever it is you're a part of, inviting them to church. Mm. It's a way of saying, I see you, I value you, and you do not need to feel alone. Don't mm. you think the power of an invite is really uh, meaningful? I, you know, it's. I think the bigger takeaway there is to remember that people out there are lonely. Right. right. Like, And some of you listening out there are lonely yeah. and, and mm. we get it. Like, mm. It's a lonely culture. There's yeah. a lot going. It is. It is lonely. And so, if you're if you're one of those people who can kind of help other people, yeah. I think a lot of this is put yourself in other people's shoes. Like yeah. back to school times, a hard time, especially people who are new, people mm-hmm. who are lonely, uh, or churches are filled with people who are lonely. That's so true. Like, so what can we do mm-hmm. to step in there? You know, you're going to think this is funny, but I'm actually going to make a serious point. We've been talking for the summer about how all I've been watching is K-dramas, Korean dramas is what I'm talking about. How did that start? Uh, It started in COVID. I needed something to watch and somebody recommended an amazing Korean show called Crash Landing on You, which I would recommend to anyone right now without hesitation. Okay, It's so good. Um, and then from there, I just got on like a like a spiral yes. of all the shows on Netflix. But here's the point I'm trying to make is um, because uh, Korea has has more of like a communal emphasis than we do in the States. Part of what I love about these shows is they're all about little communities that are like bringing each other meals and checking on each other and raising their kids together and encouraging each other and making sure no one's alone. All the different age groups are taken care of. And I, of course, there's some idealization of that. Yes, And yet there's something so beautiful about the power of community, the power of the invite, the power of not letting people be alone or noticing when they're not we, showing up. We preach it all the time. It. We do. We talk about it all yep. the time. We're just not good at it. Yeah, we're just not good at it. The last one, uh, she says, again, this is over at churchanswers.com by Jackie King talking about seizing these back to school moments as gospel opportunities is be a listening ear. Mm. One of the most undervalued resources, she says, we have is our time. And when we give of our time to really sit and listen to someone's story, we open up an opportunity to show them what it means to be known and met with compassion, grace, and empathy. I would say vice versa. Let people get to know you as well. Do that mutually, right? Um, Ask about people's stories. Listen for their needs, fears, and similarities. Share some of your own fears. You can use that as a way to point people to Jesus. And then follow up with check-ins and invites. Basically, she's saying be a friend. I think that's what I'm hearing here. This article could be summed up as be a good person. Have your eyes open. (laughs) Yeah. But especially at this time of year where people, like things are changing for people. Yeah. Uh, now is the time to do it. Yep, exactly. All right. So use this opportunity, parents, to both encourage your kids to love others and you do it as well. Brian, I thought we would just kind of go go foundational as we end the show today. At the end of every show, we love to bring you something that's either spiritually encouraging or something mm-hmm. just to put a smile on your face. And this is such a simple message I read by uh, Zach Lambert former pastor, um, no, current pastor, former mediocre athlete, he calls himself. Um, He's passionate about justice and the way of Jesus. And he says this on Twitter, and I thought it was so beautiful, and we need to hear this every single day. God loves you, Mm -hmm. not just when you're behaving a certain way and not some idealized future version of you. God loves you fully as you are right now. God delights in you. Not in a way that's burdensome or obligatory. God loves loving you. Your very existence brings God great Mm. joy. Uh, I thought that was such a simple but beautiful word and a reminder that all of us need right now. And I'm going (laughs) to, interestingly, our friend Ian Simpkins tweeted something. He tweeted? Yeah, shocking, right? (laughs) He tweeted something that I was like, huh, I don't know if I agree with that. And part of it is because of what Zach Lambert said here. So I love Ian Simpkins, but I do want to share. Ian said this, God loves you or God wants to, I'm going to, I'm going to miss it. I'm sorry, Ian. 
God wants to minister to you, not the fake version of you, or mm. God loves you, not the false version of you, something like that. And I think I understood what Ian was trying to say, but I actually think it's the false version of us that God goes after and that God is ministering to and that God does love and wants to transform. Like, I think what Ian's trying to say is like, don't pretend to be something you're not. Right, you don't need right, to right. do that for God. But I actually think it's in our pretending where God actually shows up and makes us more authentic. And I'm so grateful for that. So hmm. I appreciated this word, which is just like kind of a similar idea. But I, I think I liked how it was worded a little bit better that it's not it's not some idealized future version of you. God loves you as you are right now. Right. And that for God, that's just who God is. God loves because God loves because God is love. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think then that drives us, that becomes the motivator to change. Yeah. To, yeah. To obey. You know, I think the we talk about it all the time on this show, but I think the most important picture of our identity and how God sees us is the whole father child relationship. Yeah. Because I would never um, look at my children and say, hey, uh, I only love you if you're behaving a certain mm. way. I'm only going to love the future better version mm. of you. Uh, I don't delight in you because of you, but because of what you can do. Like all of these things, yeah. that would make me a terrible father. Totally. Just an awful father. Right. And yet we have a perfect heavenly father who we often treat that way, like, mm. as if like he thinks that way about right. us. Like. Oh, if you, you know, like, like he's the grand scorekeeper in the sky at yeah. the end of the day goes, well, didn't read Bible, right? Uh, had bad thoughts, whatever, mm-hmm. bad day, right? Yeah. Like it, we, we need to know that our identity in Christ uh, before God is secure. I am his child. And that, that then spurs me to want to be more like him yeah. and to obey him and yeah. to worship him. Um, and so many of us see God as just this enormous scorekeeper going, nope, don't love you today. Yeah. That's just a terrible way to live. And I think the best way for me to conceptualize that is to go, what if my parents treated me that way yeah, when I was younger? What if good. I treated my kids that way? It would be, it would, it doesn't make any sense. It would be terrible. One of the things that my husband, Kevin talks about a lot is how for a, a long time, he thought that like God had sort of this file f- filing cabinet right and like his folder was in there and and he was like you know maybe god wasn't always pulling out my file and examining it and judging if i was doing good or bad and making marks in it based on that and he was like but i still always believed that somewhere in the back of god's mind like over in the corner of his office was my folder my file was there and he was like it really wasn't until i began to understand the grace of of God because of Jesus's work on the cross that like, there's no filing cabinet. There's no folder. Once you are in Christ, God is no longer keeping a record of, of my rights or my wrongs because I'm covered. And I think that's, I think that's a key too. is, is, um, God is not up there. Like Brian said, writing down or having his minions yes. write down the things you did and didn't do. Oh, that's a missed opportunity. If you're a follower of Jesus, God sees Jesus in you. And so uh, because of that, we are covered in the righteousness of God. And, and again, I know I've talked about this book, but I'm reading that book, Gentle and Lowly by yeah, Jane I've heard that's a great book. Yeah, it's really good. And this is this a similar concept that he talks about. Now, he's he makes it very clear that there is if you're not a Christian, like there is a different outcome. But his point is in Christ, God only has mercy for you. God only has compassion for you. God only has grace for you. And we we have such a small imagination when it comes to the mercy and grace and love of God for us, that it is when we are our most sinful, our most struggling, our most doubtful like that he even talks about how that moves the heart of god towards us because god it's not just that god has mercy and compassion god is mercy and compassion and therefore his heart the whole point is his heart is gentle and lowly towards us that book has really kind of exploded yeah lots of people a lot of people have pushed back against it so there's a weird deal but everyone i've said every now and then there are books that make it kind of through all the noise. Yeah. And that interestingly has been one of them this year for pastors, yeah. at least 
And it's interesting that a book called Gentle and Lowly would be one that is made its made way it through. through. Apparently, and, there's a follow up called Deeper. I just got it from the library. Mm. I haven't started it yet, but apparently, it's a it's a book in like a follow up to Gentle and Lowly. That's lowly. That's supposed to be really good. But I do think there's some pushback because he doesn't talk a lot about the wrath of God, right? And and for some reason, we want there's something in us, and he even talks about this: our own humanity. We we can only see right. God's wrath because that's how we respond to when we've been wronged. But he continues to talk about how God's heart, Old Testament to New Testament, as seen in Jesus, is compassion for his sons and for his daughter. So again, this word from Zach Lambert, I hope it encourages you today. God loves you, not just when you're behaving a certain way and not some idealized right. future version of you. God loves you fully as you are right now. God delights in you. Not in a way that's burdensome or obligatory. God loves loving you. Your very existence mm. bring, brings God great joy. We hope that encourages you on this Wednesday evening, especially if you're struggling with wondering if God loves you. He does. He does. He does. Because he is love. Mm. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.